0: This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote ideas to the meaning
1: of the word?
2: Chris, I think we talked about this on like episode 10. Is your full name like Christopher? Yes. Okay. It is. Because sometimes people would be named Alex. And, and they're Alexander. But it's like, no, yeah. it's just Alex. It's like, whoa. So I always forget that. And I'm like, can I just be like Christopher and that be proper? Andrew, mm-hmm. Andrew
0: was. Yeah, if you want to yell at me, it's Andrew is short for Andrew is trying to figure out Kaminari right now. <laughs> yeah, By the way, like hi, Ronu.
2: <laughs> you're working on it right now. Not at this exact second,
0: <laughs> but a second ago, he was. Exactly a second ago, I was. Yeah.
2: Oh, um, Andrew. Andrew is figuring out Kaminari. Jason's not short for anything. Oh, no. it's too bad. My Jason, Michael. Michael's not short for anything either, so. All right. Well, now that we've solved that mystery, how's your week?
0: Pretty good. Uh, it's been a whirlwind because we finally started landscaping the new house. So there's loud noises outside and the dog barking at the people working outside all day long. Cool. But yeah, we don't have six foot tall weeds in the front of our house anymore. We have empty planter beds and soon to have shrubs. We adult things.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm the worst. Both Shane and I are the worst at like keeping plants alive. So like when we moved into this house, it was like very nicely landscaped and like slowly like little bushes have died and we just pulled the whole thing out. So like our house in the front has two bushes on one side and one on the other. My neighbors hate me. It's okay. I have started deploying an app. On the new version of Hatchbox. And then I got a notification that it's live for everyone now. Is that true?
0: That accidentally went out. but Yeah, it will be by the time this is live, it will be. Basically, it was just finishing up some... I took the new Tailwind template, got the new web marketing site up, and they were good enough to launch. And so, yeah, I might switch the root domain to point to the new version today, maybe. We'll see. It depends on if I want to work this weekend or not. Right, right. (laughs) And it should go live next week. So everything is looking pretty solid and just want to get people moved over to it because the old version has so many little flaws and stuff that weren't worth fixing. The accidents. So now a lot of those support tickets are kind of like, hey, just move over to the new version. (laughs) (laughs) You'll save yourself a lot of trouble and you'll save me a lot of trouble as well. Just little things like Caddy being so good at SSL certificate management versus Acme S-H or whatever else that Mm. just for some reason will refuse to renew certain people's SSL certs certain times. Little things like that are now magically fixed. And it's very, very relieving feeling to have that behind me where we can move people to a new one and life will be better.
2: So... Yeah, it's good. It's cool. I'm using a DigitalOcean managed database for the first time with Hatchbox. Oh, cool. So When not provisioned my cluster and then my server, I was like, oh, I'm going to actually not provision Postgres and I'm going to let DigitalOcean manage it for me.
0: That's nice. Because the old version, we were just like, yep, log into DigitalOcean and copy-paste the database URL you into your app and that was it. But now... We can create it for you and then attach the the environment variable and stuff and it it is much more seamless than it used to be.
2: that is one thing about Heroku I've always liked is the managed databases. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily love I think it updates like once a week and take the app down once a week, but outside of that, I love that I don't think about it, and so I'm hoping to have a similar ish experience with digitalOcean managing that, and it's got stuff like it looks like it was like one click to add pooling with PG Bouncer and stuff like that on DigitalOcean, so.
0: I think so. And replicas and I think point-in-time recovery and things like that are all your friend, which are much more of a pain to set up yourself and manage and stuff. So our unmanaged databases are really just install Postgres server and that's it. Right,
2: (laughs) yeah, I'm so bad at that. I don't want to be responsible for like managing that. I mean, I could let Jumpstart do it all, but I can let Jumpstart manage like the web processes and like I can get in and move around the server if I need to. But when it comes to hosting like production, Postgres, I've never done that. I will take that thing down so fast and then never be able to recover.
0: Yeah, you don't want to have to do the database admin job. It's not near as fun as actually writing code and causing the the DBA problems. Right.
2: (laughs) Oh, well... I'm excited for your pre-launch, your unofficial Hashbox 2 launch.
0: Yes. It should be launched by the time this goes live, though. So is it a pre-launch or is it not Schrodinger's pre-launch?
2: <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I have no mental capacity to answer that question, so I'm going to... It is Friday, after all. I'm going to do my typical move and bail on this conversation and go to the next one. So today... We are joined by Benedict, who is here to talk with us about all kinds of things, building products with Rails, scaling those products, Ember, JS, all kinds of things. So before we dig into that, Benedict, do you mind maybe giving us a quick introduction and a little more about yourself?
1: Hey, nice to be on the show. Like I've been a listener, so it's exciting to be actually part of it. So my name is Benedict Dyke. I'm a Rails developer from Germany. I've been working with Rails for 15 years, something like that, I think I started working with it when version 1.2 came out or something like that. So it's been a while. These days I'm co-founder, a technical co-founder at UserList, a email marketing automation platform for SaaS applications. And that's basically my main focus these days. Like everything else has taken a step back compared to that. Like I used to do a little bit of stores, like writing articles and stuff like that, but no more. <laughs> Now the focus is the business.
2: That's the founder trajectory, right?
1: <sighs> sort of. It's all consuming and suddenly everything that used to be fun is actually work. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: that sounds about right. So
0: user lifts, you're on Rails and Ember was one of the things that we were going to talk about. Did you use Ember from the very beginning when you started building or
1: was that something that came into play later on? It wasn't. A- a decision we made at the start, like starting with Ember right away, mostly because I was familiar with it. I've been working with Ember since before it was called Ember, so I knew my way around it. And one thing I what was it in the past... What was it called before Ember? I don't think I even knew that. It was called Sprout Core 2.0. Okay. And then it was Ember for like a month or two, and then there was some naming conflicts, and now it's Ember. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, basically for quite a while. And it was just a thing I knew and knew my way around it. And if I learned something from trying to build products in the past is building the product is hard enough and you don't want to learn a new technology on top of that. So that's what we did or didn't do and stick with what we knew. And it's been going well so far. I mean, one nice side effect of that was that we avoided all the Webpacker and Asset Pipeline and whatever stuff you turned into a visionary. <laughs> Bypassed that error by making our raise up mostly an API-only application. And with that, like, deployments were a lot faster and stuff like that. So that's an unexpected benefit, I guess. But there's been times where I question our choice to go with Ember as well. But I guess that's always the case, no matter what <laughs> technology you pick.
2: <laughs> that's me, like, every morning. I could spend 12 hours yesterday working on something, like, go to bed really confident. The next morning, I'll have like existential crisis about it so i get it i want to ask some questions about that first i want to ask though how long have you been building user list
1: we started about 5 years ago at least the idea came up yeah almost exactly 5 years ago and then it still took 2 years before we launched it publicly and it's been launched since august september 2019 something like that okay. and we're full time working on it since January 2020. That's awesome.
2: You're using Ember and you're using Rails. I think you said you're using Rails in API mode. Is that right?
1: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are a couple of views, but for the most part, it's API only.
2: That's cool. What's that? I know you had some Ember experience. Did you have some experience in like working in Rails API mode with Ember before user list? Or was this kind of your first time in that combo?
1: I had some experience because my previous product was built in the same combination. So I knew my way around it and it was an easy choice because of that.
2: Yeah, you're spot on. I yak shave so much like trying to learn technologies when I'm trying to build something on the side and then I never finish them. So going with what you know is a good call. I'm going to kind of get the weeds here because sure. I'm i just really curious. Do you keep it like one mono repo and run a Ember app and a Rails app like side by side? What is the process of scaffolding that look like?
1: At the moment, it's two separate repositories and they're also deployed independently, which sometimes comes with some challenges if there are changes that relate to both. So maybe there's a little bit of weirdness for like five minutes or so. But for the most part, it's developed independently. And yeah, it has its upsides and downsides, I guess. For one, like both deploy relatively quickly. So it's not like the asset pipeline takes a minute or so to build which is nice. And also, especially if you're deploying, we're on Heroku. So every deploy is basically building everything from scratch. And by having those two separated, like it's nice that backend changes don't always have to do the full cycle of asset compilation and stuff like that. So it's nice for quick backend changes. And also the front end, as I said, like deploys quickly as well and it's nice and independent in that regard. Do you have
0: to ever manage you know, and make things happen in sync when you make some change that affects both sides? It happens from time to time,
1: but these days we usually try to use feature flags to basically get everything in place and rolled out, and then we just switch it over at some
2: point, and for the most part, that works. So with Ember, and for those listening maybe not familiar with Ember, Ember is a JavaScript framework for building reactive and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but like building reactive front ends with JavaScript and it's different conceptually. It's the same as kind of like react and view, but it's a different take on that. And from my understanding, it kind of has some maybe not like corresponding, but it has some kind of like MVC patterns, like kind of things built around models, or at least the last time I looked at Ember. Is that still kind of the case? Is it kind of in that same vein as like React and Vue and Angular?
1: Yeah, I think it has a similar idea. And I think the main differentiator is that it's a full framework. Like it's very opinionated and it comes with everything. It has its model layer. It has its component layer. It has its view layer. It has a built-in testing framework. It's a lot of convention over configuration. So as a Rails developer, you feel right at home. And I liked it because of that. Like when I started with it, it was similar to my first time working with Rails where you had that ah, light from the sky angels singing moment when you it suddenly magically works. I had the same experience when I started working with Ember back in the day. So yeah, it fit my mental model of how to build stuff like that, like front-end applications, and it's working well for that. I guess one of the downsides is that it's on their website. I think it's the framework for building ambitious applications. And while it's good at that, it's not good at sprinkling on like you can do with React or maybe view that you, where you have like your existing Rails application and then just like gradually add some pieces here and there. With Ember, you have to commit from day one or commit to your rewrite because the sprinkling doesn't really work. So that's might be a downside if you're trying to migrate. I think that's near impossible with an existing application. Starting with it from scratch was pretty, pretty nice. And as I said, I don't regret this decision.
2: It's always appealed to me. I've never used Ember in a kind of like professional setting, but it always appealed to me. And I think it is because of the convention over configuration approach. Like Cat's very much like a core part of Ember. Cat's also very big part in the Rails community with the Merb Rails merger. And so it's very easy to buy into the idea of Ember as a Rails developer, especially when in the like mid 2010s, there is a big push to that, like kind of single page app movement. But it is interesting too. Like you said at Podia, we use mostly HTML, ERB, view components, stimulus. So it's Reflex Hotwire. Like we try and stay within the bounds of like the Rails way. I'm using air quotes here as much as we can. But there are times where like we have to push forward and like do something really interactive. And that is one thing that like React has been nice about is that we can just gradually sprinkle in a React component here and there where I could see where that'd be difficult with Vue, where it's guiding like how you route your front end application. Like it's the full feature set. Yeah. What's it like keeping up to date with those things? Like new ember releases, new Rails releases. What's that process like? Is it easier being split out? Does it make it more difficult?
1: Good question. I guess because they're independent, like it's not really an issue. Like the API pretty well defined unless the changes or the upgrades affect the API schema, which rarely is the case. It just works. And we keep both applications up to date independently. And we're using Depfu for both repositories to get automated dependency updates. And that's working nice. So it's relatively easy and relatively straightforward.
2: I could see that, especially with the Rails side. You said like you missed like the whole Webpacker era because you split them out. I could see it being much easier. Like, oh, a new version of Rails is out. We mostly just write Ruby code on the side. Okay, that's easy to update. Whereas if it's together, especially if it's like running Ember through like Webpacker, that would be that'd be a lot of moving parts. Uh, that sounds like
1: a painful experience. I've never tried it, but I don't think I want to. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hi, my name is Andrew Mason, and I'd like to tell you about HoneyBadger. Whether USD's one is down or you forget to add a configuration file, everyone has an outage from time to time. When your next outage occurs, transparency is critical. The difference between a minor annoyance that people soon forget and a fiasco that creates sustained resentment is how you communicate. That's why you need HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger is a crucial component of your incident response plan with their uptime monitoring service that now has an exciting new feature public status pages create a new status page with custom domains branding and more don't let twitter be the only way your users can find out if your app's down sign up for honey badger to improve your incident response with a shiny new status page that you'll be proud to show users visit honeybadger.io and start giving your users a better experience today let them know that remote ruby and specifically andrew mason sent you we are migrating off Webpacker at podia and it served its purpose, but I'm simultaneously like I respect it and also I'm really excited to see what the future looks like without it. So how many developers do you have at Userlist? We're a team of two,
1: developer wise. Like we're company wide a team of six, but we've got a front end developer and me as a back end developer.
2: Okay. So you find yourself writing more of the rail side of things these days?
1: At least these days, yeah. The front-end developer joined us in December. So the majority of the front-end code was written by me and now he has to clean it up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What's that been like going from a technical co-founder being the only one developing the application to where now you actually have, like you're bringing someone else in, they're in the garden that you have built and you're working with them. What's that like?
1: I imagined it to be harder than it actually is. Leo, our front-end developer, is really a really cool dude and he's doing great work. And what's nice about having a dedicated front end developer on the project these days is that he can actually spend some time on stuff. Because previously with just me, I maybe would run into a challenge on the front end. And I mean, it's the front end. There's always, there's always a challenge around the corner. So in the past, I didn't have enough time to actually dig deep and figure out a good solution. So it was usually trying to figure something out quickly because there was so much other stuff on my plate that I had to attend to. And these days, he can spend a couple of weeks. or even right now, we're rebuilding our message editor, the message composer. And he's been working on that for the last two months. And I would never been able to spend that time on just this in the past. So it's nice to have someone who can actually do this and Him working on that isn't really blocking anything else. Whereas previously, if I'd spent two months on something, that would have been a disaster, I guess.
2: (laughs) Definitely. I'm curious to, as you have built this product from the ground up and you've been working on it, you launched in 2019. So we're looking at three or four years now. What have been some of the, they don't have to be technical, but what are some of the challenges you face just in terms of building and growing a product like this? I think the biggest
1: challenge wasn't a technical one, but like a mental one in a way, just seeing it grow slowly. You always imagine you you launch a thing and then it's rocket ship to the sky and like hockey stick growth and whatever. And it hasn't been the case with this product. And it probably rarely is. These days, I feel like it's more an exception than the norm. And honestly, like the couple of months or maybe a year or so in the phase where it was Obviously, working because people were signing up for it, but it wasn't making enough money to pay for anything and also not growing super fast, so you'd be like, "Ah oh, I can see the end of the road at the end of the tunnel where it's like it's sustainable and whatever." those months, or as I said, like maybe it was a little bit over a year, that was tough because you were showing up every day and putting in work and dealing with all sorts of stupid stuff that has been happening and then Looking at the numbers and seeing little effect or not a lot effect, that was hard. And pushing through that was one of the biggest challenges. Yeah.
0: I definitely can relate to that. I would imagine that's most people's biggest challenge, like starting a business and a product. Just you got to wait it out, really. You will try a bunch of things, but you don't know what's going to work. and You don't know what's not going to work. So it just Mm -hmm. takes a lot of time. And then balancing like you have these dreams of what you want the product to be versus what can we build now that's going to provide the best ROI right away. Did you have any of those challenges like with technical stuff that you wanted to build, but you decided we'll just put that off for a while and focus on marketing and trying to get new
1: customers or how did the first year go? Yeah, a lot of it was just building like bare minimum versions of things. And for example, the message editor we're redoing now was one of those things where we knew it was kinda kinda shitty from the start. <laughs> and like only now we've got the time and the energy and the resources to spend a couple of weeks or now it's even a couple of months on it at like really focusing on the user experience because it's a core component. But as I said, like there was so much other stuff on my plate that it wasn't feasible spending that amount of time on on a single project like this.
0: Did you pick up like an editor that was pre-made like an
1: Ember plugin or something
0: like that just to
1: use the first version? We built the first version and this new version based on Mirror, which is like a JavaScript based WYSIWYG editor framework of sorts. And we're building on top of that and adding a lot of custom stuff that's like unique to our application. But the base. It's ProseMirror and it's data schema thing that powers the entire thing.
0: Is that related to CodeMirror? Yep. It's the same author and it
1: has some similar patterns.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I was like, I know I've used CodeMirror before, but I don't think I've dove into ProseMirror itself, but it's one of those things that is a rabbit hole in its own. To build an editor, you could spend years and years probably building the perfect editor as the prosphere author is oh, probably yes. doing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Did guess you have some
1: versions three or four. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I bet it's a, a massive challenge. Did you have other things like that that you ran into as you were building it? Because I know that there's probably a lot of things happening in an app that like marketing tends to collect a lot of events and probably has a lot of rights and other things that maybe your standard blog type App where it's a lot of
1: read heavy things. Did you have other challenges around that? Absolutely. Like one of the big learnings for me in this project was UserList as a write constraint application for the most part. Whereas previously I'd always built read constraint applications where you like your read database queries take a long time because they're collecting a lot of data and there's a missing index or something. But UserList was the first application I'm working on that it's where writing to the database becomes a bottleneck if you're not being careful. So for example, in the past, in an attempt to speed up loading, like in next use and stuff like that, I introduced counter caching. And a week later that brought down the entire application because we had a customer who had a lot of signups in a, in a short period of time. So the onboarding campaign would start and we'd be updating the messages sent counter all the time. And at some point, like, the background queue started overflowing because the database wasn't quick enough and like locking that row, incrementing that number by one, releasing the lock, getting the next write in and like suddenly just updating one column in a database basically stopped everything.
0: (laughs) Wow. That is stuff that you're like, I'll just turn that feature on. It seems like a normal thing. And all of a sudden you realize like we have a special case that these things that we take for granted we can't do that anymore. So what, yeah, so what was your
1: solution? It's been a recurring problem. So there has been multiple solutions by now. I think the first attempt was being smarter with the SQL queries we were running against the database to so like get a rows and then do a common table expression to get all of the counts at the same time and then joining the two. That worked for a while. And I think we're still using that in some parts. The other thing was similar to counter caching, but just updating it every couple of minutes instead of in real time, which also helps. So for some parts, we have a basically a background job that updates the, the counters for a specific type uh, every couple of minutes. So you have a slight delay in the UI, but it's usually fine. And then the recent implementation we did for like broadcasts and stuff like that, where you really want to see the progress, we added a kind of a queue system in the database. So we maintain a counter column. And then for every counter column, we also have basically a deltas table where we just insert changes and then reconcile them every couple of minutes. But in the query for the actual table, we also do like a join, take the number in the column, summarize the pending changes in that queue column uh, and that queue table, and then add those two together to get like the real-time counter in the result. Those are the tricks we had to come up with to keep the system alive and not have it fall over with locking and stuff like that.
2: I think you mentioned that you're hosting at Heroku. Are you also doing databases at Heroku or have you explored another database place for that? We're
1: still on Heroku. We might migrate to something else, but it's still working on Heroku. It's expensive on Heroku, but it's also expensive everywhere else. The database is growing fast and... At this point, I feel like other than rolling our own database servers, which doesn't sound like a good idea, at least not for now, price doesn't really make a difference regardless of where you look. So far, it's working well. We're starting to look elsewhere as well. (laughs) Yeah,
2: we're still running Podio on Heroku Postgres. There is something about having everything in the same provider right now. But there are certain things, like I look at like crunchy data, as an example, posted Postgres. Mm -hmm. And I think that would also be pretty cool to explore.
1: They're definitely on my short list of things to try. (laughs) But it's always a question of, do you spend the time looking at minor infrastructure improvements? I mean, it's a major change, but in the end, does it really matter? Probably not, at least not right now. And like actually doing product stuff. So always a balance, I guess.
0: What other database performance things have you had to implement solutions for? Any other performance things that come to mind?
1: Yeah. One other challenging thing that we do is we have a pretty flexible segmentation engine. So one core feature of userlist is that you can filter your users based on all the data you send us and save those filters as segments. And we will constantly update them and remove users, add users depending on how data changes. And for that, we're basically collecting those filter conditions in a big JSON blob that we store and then transform that into sometimes ridiculously large SQL queries that we run against the database. And those have undergone a couple of iterations of like improving things and like speeding things up and making them smarter and less stupid at the same time, reducing the number of type conversions and stuff like that, that sound like an easy thing, but for the database it's not able to use any indexes anymore you need specific indexes using that transform and stuff like that so there have been a couple of learnings over the time of working on this where we redid this a couple of times just to speed it up and just to make it work well without bringing everything down
0: how comfortable were you with sql before you started and did you have to learn a whole bunch of these things on the fly just realizing like, oh, this is going to be a challenge as you went through it? Or were you already comfortable with complex
1: SQL queries? I think I was comfortable, but I've learned a lot since then. There's always something new you discover that you didn't realize before. So as again, simple typecast is one example that sounds simple, but can ruin the performance quite badly. And just like SQL features that I didn't know were a thing like... These days, when I run into a problem, going to the Postgres documentation and just browsing around, trying to figure out, maybe there's already a thing that does this. is actually quite handy. Yeah.
0: Are you breaking out of Active Record to do a lot of these things? Are they custom SQL queries, or you using Arel,
1: or how are you it, implementing these? It's a lot of Arel. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of Arel. <laughs> I mean, the nice thing about Arel is that it keeps things composable. Whereas, like writing static SQL queries and as raw SQL makes them pretty static and not flexible enough. And then combining them becomes challenge. And we create a lot of small fragments of Arel that we then compose to to get those larger queries in place.
2: And with Arel, was that a lot of learning? Did you have a decent arel background before or was that kind of like as you're encountering these problems, you're like, oh, I need to learn how to do this with AREL?
1: Yeah, it's somewhat comfortable, but also, again, learning a lot. And I think the problem I have with ARL is that it works for the most part, but then in some cases, the implementation doesn't quite match what I'm trying to do. So these days, the biggest challenge
2: is fighting ARL into Generating the query I actually need. (laughs) (laughs) So as now two developers, what's a day look like for you? Because as we know, like a dream world is we just build new features all the time, but we have like support requests and bugs to fix things like that. How do you kind of balance your week for those things as a co-founder?
1: I don't have like a fixed schedule for a day, but we have a fixed schedule for the week of sorts. So sadly enough, it feels like Mondays and Tuesdays, I don't get any coding done or like not any feature work, mostly because Monday mornings is usually just slow because it's Monday morning. And then we have a kickoff call with a developer around my lunchtime in his mornings where we planned a week for the front end development work. And then usually after that, I have a call with my co-founder to plan like overall direction of the company and marketing activities, or even next features we want to build. So that usually takes up all my Monday, even though I mean, it's not that long in hours, but it's in the middle of the day, so right. deep work is near impossible. And then Tuesdays, there's a lot of other calls as well, podcast recording and stuff like that. So it usually takes until Wednesday before I can actually get into code. And if I'm lucky, nothing's on fire. and Nothing major comes up in customer support. So I can actually work on something or focus on something. But sometimes there are weeks where I feel like I'm not getting anything meaningful done, where it's just like little fixes here and there or like customer support here and there, or even doing some pair programming with our front end developer because sometimes, as I said, like front end stuff is tricky. And sometimes two pairs of eyes see more or have better solutions than just working it alone. And depending on how that goes, like it's a productive week or it's, well, a slow week or whatever you might call
2: that. (laughs) Do you still feel that you're getting to do, I know you're saying that some days don't get to write code at all. Do you still feel like you get to code a decent amount as like a founder or has that been decreasing? It's coming in waves,
1: I guess. I mean, I'm super lucky in having a a co-founder with me on this. So my co-founder, Jane, is doing a lot of the marketing activities and working with the rest of the team on writing blog posts, being active on social media, doing customer support. That keeps a lot of things off my plate that otherwise, as a founder, I'd have to do as well. So I still get to a fair bit of coding. But at some time, I was realizing that I spent way much more time in spreadsheets than I ever imagined I'd ever do. Early in my career, I was like, yeah, spreadsheets, I don't want to deal with those. And these days, I find myself in spreadsheets more often than not. <laughs> I heard that you were really good at
0: Postgres performance. And I'm wondering if there's any specific tips you have in even kind of starting on that route. Okay, this is slow. Where do I go from here?
1: So one of the great tools in my tool belt is PG Mustard, just for running, explain, analyze on a database, it's like the go-to first thing you do when something is slow and doesn't work. But like, for me, one of the challenges was always like figuring out why is it slow and what can I do about it? And PG Mustard was like a game changer in that, where you can just paste the explain in and it just tells you, ah, oh, the problem is right there. And you can do one of these two things or whatever to actually improve things or look into and then you can try again. So that was super helpful. And then one other realization I had last year, two years ago, with the help of a friend was like, it sounds obvious, but relational databases are set-based. So they are really good at working with sets. Whenever something is slow, reconsider if you're actually looping over stuff instead of comparing like just two big collections and doing an intersect or a union or whatever, because that the database is usually good at that. So sometimes, even though it's counterintuitive, it's better to have two large sets of primary keys or whatever and just intersecting those or whatever instead of trying to be smart and doing a little bit of work with entire rows of like data that might be... It's a little bit counterintuitive, but like sometimes working with larger sets is even faster than looping over a small set, but looping and not doing it in one query and stuff like that.
2: I assume that to be please correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of the optimizations the people who work on Postgres make under the hood to do these kind of impressive things with large sets of data. This isn't necessarily specific to Postgres, but when Rails was like, here's insert all and you can just give it this data structure and then we'll just do like an upsert or an insert yeah. into Postgres. And it's much faster than us trying to like do this like manually. It's just that's just fascinating to me.
1: Yep, totally. That's really cool. And we use that a lot.
2: (laughs) Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy founder life to come chat some programming things with us. Where are some places people can find you online or maybe learn more about UserList?
1: So UserList is at UserList.com. That's the easiest one. I'm at Benedict Dyke on Twitter and that's social media wise. That's basically the only place I hang out these days. And if you're into podcasts and want to listen to me rambling about stuff every week, then I run a podcast with my co-host Benedicta at slowandsteadypodcast.com. Awesome.
2: Well, thank you again. And Chris Andrew will fire it up again next week. Thanks for having me.